Welcome everybody back to Secret Stories from the Underground. Today I am your host, Danny Whitman, and as always I am co-hosted by my brother, Dean Whitman. Today we have Mark Scheffler on the podcast, uh, Last House on the Left, many, many great horror films. This guy's bringing some great conversation for October to us here. Um, it was awesome to sit down and talk with Mark. Such a great guest. We can't wait to have him back. You know, we had a good time with him. We talked horror movies, stand-up comedy, all the things that I love in life. Um, this Friday night, though, if you are in the Omaha area, I got to plug. Got to get out of the way real quick. Omaha area, this Friday night, we are at the American Dream. That's right. Dean and I and our band, D&D, are at the American Dream in Omaha, Nebraska, right here in our hometown, not our hometown, but the, the place that we currently live at until we move to another great city. Um, we'll be playing live at the American Dream. Come out. Four, four bands. We're the headlining act. We can't wait. It's been so long since we have uh, been able to put on a show in Omaha. We've been getting back out there, but this will be our first one back in Omaha in, I think, like a year and a half. So, very exciting. This Friday night, American Dream, Omaha, Nebraska. It's a place to be. It only costs you a few bucks. Come on. Come on out and support live entertainment, live music. Uh, You know, please wear a mask. Be safe, though. And, um, you know, be be courteous to others. Ah, Fucking choking on my own words here. Be courteous. That's what I meant to say. Courteous to others. And real quick, uh, the reason why Dean is not here shooting this with me is because I received an email today that extremely fucking irritated me. Um, I I had a guy give me an email uh, that I, I gave him an offer to be on the show. And uh, the, the part that irritates me the most is this guy ate me alive in email fucking sent me an email back just eating me alive about uh he looked and he's seen the way that i promote things and that i've misspelled some words and uh, i got some spelling grammar issues and everything else well let me tell you guys something for people that haven't listened before to the podcast i know i've talked about this before on the show but uh let me just you know come right out of the closet and say it i'm dyslexic Okay, I'm dyslexic. And instead of having a group of people do all my work for me, instead of having my publicist post shit on Facebook and do this and do that so the world doesn't know that I don't spell the greatest, uh, I don't do that. I don't fucking hide it. I'm dyslexic. I'm sorry if I've misspelled any of the guest names. I'm sorry if I, I misspell anything when I go to promote the show. I truly apologize. I'm never going to misspell somebody's name and try to disrespect or anything like that. I would never try to disrespect anybody that we have on the show. In my opinion, once you're on the show, you're family. All right, fucking, you can email me. You can you can ask to be back on here. It's never going to offend me. I'm never going to be like, oh, you know, I don't want people that ask to be on here. Hit me up. I'm cool. But when you send me an email and uh, tear me apart for not knowing how to spell or you want to put down the show because you searched it in a search engine and it didn't pop up right away because you didn't do it right, none of that's on me. You know, like I said, I'll take the, the blame for the spelling and blah, blah, blah. At the end of the day, why don't you just take it a compliment that somebody asked you to be a part of something? 
That's the problem with where we are in the world is everybody wants to fight, wants to bicker and act like they're smarter and better than the next. Well, you know, just take the compliment that I asked you to be on the show. You know, and I, I feel like a lot of times, a lot of these people that I hit up, you know, actors, comedians, they're having a bad day. So they'll shit on me to make themselves feel better. And the the, the, part, the part that really makes me mad about the gentleman that just ate me alive through email there is, for one, I, I kind of sent him an email, and the only reason why I asked him to be on the show is because he's friends with another guest. It's not because his body of work is just so fantastic that I need to sit down and talk to this dude. In my opinion, I have no reason to sugarcoat anything. This guy doesn't have a great body of work. He just happened to work with one of my friends who was a former guest on the show who I figured, you know, this guy probably doesn't know bad people. So it'd be safe to hit him up. They're friends. And come to find out, my, my buddy and one of our old previous guests on the show, he does know dickheads. You know, I just, I didn't think so, because he's such a sweet dude. I didn't think he'd know bad people, but he does. You know, and that, that bad dude decided to put me down to make his day feel better. So, you know, if you need to, if that's what you need to do, if you need to put other people down to make yourselves feel better, please use me, because, you know, there's a lot of great people out there. I don't want their feelings hurt. But why don't you just take the time and not be dicks? All right. Uh, I've heard from many guests on this show. Don't ever treat anybody badly because you never know the direction that people are going to take in this business. And I hope to God, if there is a God out there, that one day I'll be able to send him back an email along with many other people, not just this guy. This guy's just our latest offender of being an asshole. But many people... And say, ha, 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 I bet you'd love to be on the show now. And that's what I'm hoping for. I hope that day comes around. It's not there yet. I'm not going to act like we're better than anybody else. We are a show in progress. And we're very lucky to work with the people that we work with. And uh, it's getting better. That's all I care about is the show's getting better. The guests are getting better. And we're having a good time doing this. It's really, um, that's really important to me too just having a good time with the guest. Now, if this guy would have took some time and, you know, gave me an hour of his time and actually been on the show, he'd realize how much fun that we have here. And, um, you know, he would have been able to promote some of the movies that he's been in that nobody's seen yet. Because like I said, his body of work's not the greatest, but you know, when you're up and coming too, why don't you use platforms like this to promote yourself, you know, promote them movies that nobody's seen yet that have been out for a few years. Uh, we talk to guests all the time, a lot bigger name guests than the, the dude that I'm t- talking about right now that have done hundreds of movies that I've never seen. You know, these are very talented people, bigger name people. They've been in movies I've never seen. It's it's not, you know, I'm not trying to put anybody down there. There's a billion movies out. So, you know, if you're in a bunch of movies that nobody's seen, this is a perfect platform for you because we're in a bring you on here we'll talk about it we'll let you promote anything we don't care just don't be dicks to us at the end of the day just be nice people to everybody you know come on fucking I, I, I'm just so frustrated with people going out of their way to be mean being rude you know and everything else to each other come on we're supposed to be better than this folks but uh, that's enough of my bullshit uh, huge shout out to Mark Scheffler uh, we hope to have him back. 
Such a great guest. Like I said, we had a great time with him. And, uh, you know, we, we, we hope to see him in the, on the big screen soon or back here on this podcast. That's enough of my bullshit. Let, this Friday night, Omaha, let's rock out. Let's have a good time. Let's party, all right? It's uh, only a couple left. We only have a few shows left before we hit the old dusty trail and head west. So come on, Nebraska. Let's party. Here's our interview. Mark, are you there? Yes, I am. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Hey, I'm here with my co-host, Dean. How you doing, Mark? Steven? Did I hear Steven? Dean. Dean. Okay. How are you, Dean? Doing well. Doing well. How's your day going, Mark? Well, let's see. Um... My wife didn't leave LA on time, so she's still there running errands. And I'm I'm out in our place in the desert waiting for her. A gardener I was supposed to meet with this morning showed up an hour late and I couldn't meet with him because ten seconds later I'm jumping onto this show. So so far it's pretty normal. <laughs> yeah. Everybody in LA is late. Nothing's changed. Unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, well, well, I actually well, love LA. LA has been unbelievably good to me. So I, I don't, uh, I, I don't trash it, uh, and I don't like when people trash it because my experience is, like I said, it, uh, it's been very kind to me. Yeah, well, no, we, uh, we love LA. We just understand we, that it, it's impossible to be anywhere on time. <laughs> yeah, no, that, we love it so much. We're moving there. So yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, we, we love California. Yeah, just just to give you guys a little heads up, if I, I've tried to soundproof this as much as possible, but if if you hear this uh, like whirring sound, you know, uh, behind me in the distance, um, we we have hardwood floors here, and my wife uh, got a couple of Roombas. You know those? <laughs> you know what they are? Yeah, 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 yeah. So so. Um, that I don't know how to turn them off. She has them programmed, and they do what the, what they want, and they don't listen to me. They only listen to her. And <laughs> you know, she's she anthropomorphizes them. Like you know, it's a machine. So sometimes it runs out of juice running around the house. She doesn't ever say to me, "Hey, I can't find the Roomba." She'll run in and say, "The Roomba is missing." <laughs> <laughs> I said, okay, do they ever fight it out? I don't know. What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> have they ever uh, gotten into it? The two Roombas? Yeah, have you ever had a Roomba fight? <laughs> um, no, actually, because one of them, uh, one of them sweeps, and the other one mops. So, so they they kind of uh, they have kind of a detente, like they know each other exists, but they don't run in the same circles. Nice. Nice. They have a different group of friends. <laughs> much, they have much different group of friends. And one is black and one is white. So, yeah. And and uh, the white one seems to be a little more entitled than the black one. Yeah. That figures. It seems to be a problem out there. Well, because the white one doesn't do shit unless the black one does it first. And I find that to be completely wrong. And, yeah. And, and like I said, the white one is is kind of entitled. <laughs> he 
and and my wife has has given her a, a given it a feminine personality so you know really entitled <laughs> so you you got to watch how you address this thing huh pardon me yeah i it, i i'm not kidding you it's the black one is like fucking uh um obsessive it's it's like like every it's it's like it seems like to me it's like on all the time and and it, no matter if you drop like a grain of Parmesan cheese on the kitchen floor, you hear this thing coming after it. If it was in a Star <laughs> Wars, yeah, no, seriously, if it was in a Star Wars movie, it would be like OCD two. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, man. So, so how much does a Roomba set cost, man? I got to look into getting this. <laughs> well, either you guys married. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then you know there's real cost, and then there's actual cost, right? Yes. Yes. Real cost is what you have to pay for it. The actual cost is what you have is 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 the benefit of it. So I think uh, uh, my wife buys everything on sale. I think she even got me on sale. Uh, <laughs> but she, so I think one of them, the the black one, we paid like at Costco like four hundred for on a deal. And then the white one, she got it uh, bing, bingity, bing for like with a coupon or something. I don't know. She paid like three fifty for it. All right. Yeah. No. Yeah. But you see what it, that that's what we had to pay for it. But the cost benefit is I don't ever hear, hey, can you grab this broom and sweep the floor? Well, that's, yeah. that's wonderful, man. Yeah. That that's really something you can't put a price tag on. Yeah, I, I, wish, I wish like the IRS would allow you to deduct investments in your peace and mind, peace and mind. From your <laughs> so can you equip it with, uh, with its own theme music as well as going around the house? <laughs> its own what? Its own theme music. Well, we don't have to do that because my wife has, uh, <clears throat> she's a gadget woman. So she has, we have Alexa's in every room of the house. <laughs> So every room has its own Alexa. It's it's, so it's like yeah. If you if you stand in the center of my house and you scream Alexa, what time is it? Like you know, seven different voices come at you. It's like a <laughs> so when the robot apocalypse happens, your place is not the place to be. <laughs> no, I'm telling you, they, they, these fuckers. That I don't care what they say. These things know who. Like they don't like me at all. Like, <laughs> no, because they'll, they'll. She has them programmed. They come into my office. They make me move everything around, and then <laughs> do the room. I move everything back, and then like ten seconds later, they decide to come back. <laughs> it's like that old fucking uh, um, uh, little rascals ten cents worth of jelly bean sketch, you know. <laughs> Any chance yeah. the wife is fucking with you and has an app on her phone that she can make it do that? Like, <laughs> well, there's every chance she would do that. <laughs> um, not any chance. I don't, she's in LA running some errands, so she's like busy doing shit. So I, not today. But I think she has. <laughs> I, I do think she has has them programmed uh, um, to to mess with me. And I'm going to tell her you said it too. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, What's it like living out in the desert there? Um, it's dry. <laughs> no, it, it's we. It's nice. Like we, we, we commute back and forth, right? If I have to be in LA, we go. We have a little place in LA, 
And it's really nice because here we have a nice house, you know, a really nice house. And then in LA, we have a small apartment that's like a, you know, pas de terre. It's like we're, if we're traveling, we stay there a couple of days, going, you know, coming and going. And, and, and it, I, I, I love LA, but we didn't, we wanted to get a, a, a place out of LA, but we, we, we had a, a range, a, a distance range, because we like our doctors. We're older people now. We like our doctors. And we didn't want to be like more than driving distance from our doctors. So that's, we, we, we settled on Indio, which is uh, right near Coachella next, next, and then near Palm Springs. Okay. Yeah, nice. no, very nice. Yeah, it's nice. It's, it's nice out here. I like it. Have you ever gone to the Coachella? No, no, I don't like crowds, man. I don't, uh, ah. <laughs> I can stay away from crowds. I don't, uh, I don't mind being on stage in front of a crowd, but to actually be in the crowd, not my thing. Yeah, I get some anxiety with that myself. I don't like, yeah, it's too unpredictable. I, I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> we play, we play in a band and we don't like crowds, which is great. <laughs> I don't like being in the crowd. I agree with no, you. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I love being, no, I love being on stage in front of a crowd because I, you know, I'm my own favorite subject and, and, yeah. uh, I, I love being the center of attention, but I don't, I don't, I don't like, I wouldn't want to be one of the people in the crowd. Yeah, no, that that's understandable. People nowadays are too unpredictable, you know? Yeah. There's some weird shit going around. Who needs that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nobody needs that drama in their life. <laughs> oh, no, not a bit. No, since you like being the center of attention, this show is uh, right up your alley. It's pretty much all we're, we're going to do. About you. Yeah, all we're going to do is talk about you. So, uh, when did you when did you get into film? Uh, I well, Last House was the first film that I did uh, when I was twenty. Released when I was twenty one. So um, I would have to say when I was twenty. All right. So uh, how did, how did you get on that? All right. So I had been. I had been doing stand-up in New York and going on auditions, acting auditions. When I was, I, I moved there when I was uh, 19. I was prior to that, I was the stage manager of the Raleigh Hotel in the Catskill Mountains. Then I met a kind of a well-known East Coast comedian who took me on as uh, uh, his road manager, and I spent a year doing that. Uh, and that ended after two weeks. We did two weeks at the Copa, and I was actually part of his act, so I was actually I was performing all this time. So then I just went out on my own and I lucked into a manager. Uh, I lucked into the same management company that was at the time, which was um, in 1970, 1970, they were handling Tom Jones and Engelbert Humperdinck. So it was a pretty big name firm. It was Lloyd Greenfield and Associates. And the guy who handled me, I walked into his office one day, Dick Towers, and he said, hey man, uh, um, I got a movie audition for you. So I said, great. And uh, he said, go down to this address. Uh, it's uh, between 5th and 6th in the 50s. And you, you go up, you'll see two guys. One's named Wes, one's named Sean. And uh, you'll read a scene. And that'll be it. So I did it. Went down, met this guy, Wes. Uh, skinny guy with like long, stringy hair. And Sean, a shorter guy with a mustache. And um, I read a scene. And by the time I got back to Dick's office, which was in Rockefeller Center, a few blocks away, they called and, and said, uh, that's our junior. So that's how it happened. Wes and Sean, of course, was Wes Craven and Sean Cunningham. That's awesome. Yeah, no, that's very cool. 
so so uh yeah that's how i got it. and then i made the movie and uh it was made for uh, uh drive-ins it was made it financed by a company uh out of boston called hallmark releasing and they put up the cash yeah they they put up the cash to make the film and they had a chain of uh drive-ins uh in the uh you know in in, in new england so they they made this movie to for like ninety three thousand dollars or something to to uh, be a second uh, film on like a late night date weekend you know horror scary kind of thing right and then um, Roger Ebert was then writing for the Chicago Sun Times and was still the like the country's one of the country's preeminent film critics out of nowhere he writes like a three and a half out of four star review of Last House. And literally overnight, everything fucking changed, man. Like, we, no more drive-ins. Uh, suddenly, mainstream theaters. New York was had had subways papered with one sheets, and Hess and I were just walking around the city, just not fucking believing it. It just was amazing. So, do you remember what his review was exactly on the film? Do I remember it? Um, hang on one second. If you give me one second, I'll get it. For, I'll, I'll I'll find it again because I, I usually have it somewhere on my computer. Uh, yeah, no, Roger, that's cool. Talk among yourselves, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Dean, so, how's the weather out there? Where are you guys uh, located? We're in the Midwest. We're in Omaha. Okay. Smack dab, uh, middle of America. <laughs> okay. All right, here, I'll read it to you, okay? Yeah. Okay, Last House on the left is a, a now remember we're in drive-ins, right? We're, we're drive-ins, no one, Hess and I and Freddie Lincoln came out of a screening. We never fucking thought anyone was gonna ever see this movie, okay? We laughed, you know, we each made a few hundred bucks uh, uh, and, and we were convinced that it was gonna go play in those drive-ins and then get tossed on the dung heap of, of shitbag films, right? So, and then uh, uh, this was released on January 1st of 1972. Last House on the Left is a tough, bitter little sleepy, sleeper of a movie that's about four times as good as you'd expect. There is a moment of such sheer and unexpected terror that it beats anything in the heart and the mouth line since Alan Arkin jumped out of the darkness at Audrey Hepburn and wait until dark. I don't want to give the impression, however, that this is simply a good horror movie. It's horrifying, all right, but in ways that have nothing to do with the supernatural. It's the story of two suburban girls who go into the city for a rock concert, are kidnapped by a gang of sadistic escaped convicts and their sluttish girlfriend and are raped and murdered. Then, in a coincidence, even the killers find extreme. The gang ends up spending the night at the home of one of the girl's parents. The parents accidentally find out the identities of the killers because of a stolen locket and some blood-stained clothing in their baggage. Enraged, the father takes on the gang single-handedly and murders them. Does any of this sound familiar? Think a moment. Setting aside the modern details, this is roughly the plot of Ingmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring. The story is also based on a true incident, we're told at the beginning of the movie, but I have my doubts. I think the producers may simply be trying one of those only the names have been changed capers. What Last House does, what comes through in Last House is a powerful narrative told so directly and strongly that the audience, 
mostly in a mood for just another good old exploitation film, was rocked back on its psychic heels. Wes Craven's direction never lets us out from under most the most unbearable dramatic tension, except in some silly scenes involving a couple of dumb cops who overact and seriously affect the plot's credibility. The acting is unmannered and natural, I guess. There's no posturing. There's a good ear for dialogue and nuance, and there is evil in this movie. Not bloody escapism or a thrill a minute, but a fully developed sense of the vicious natures of the killers. There is no glory in this violence. And Craven has written in a younger member of the gang, moi, again borrowed from Bergman's story, who sees the horror as fully as the victims do. This movie covers the same philosophical territory as Sam Peckinpah's Straw Dogs and is more hard-nosed about it. Sure, a man's home is his castle, but who wants to be left with nothing but a castle and a lifetime memory of horror? So that that review, wow. yeah, and that was that from Roger, Roger Ebert, man. That was Roger Ebert, and overnight, everything changed. Now you can see why, like overnight, everything changed? Yeah, no. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, <laughs> so that, what, what you were saying a minute ago, that you guys, you know, got paid a few hundred bucks, you guys thought it, you know, was over from there. Now, when the film blows back up, or, or blows up after this, do they, did they end up paying you guys what you no. guys should have got paid for this? No, no, it doesn't work that way. You know, <laughs> it doesn't look, you know, there, there's a lot of talk about things like that. And I guess I, there, it just doesn't work that way. We signed a contract, right? Yeah. We got, you know, simple contract law. You signed a contract. You know, it wasn't a union movie, so there was no no SAG uh, stuff to deal with. You you sign a contract, you take the money. Uh, it, you know, if you're age of majority to sign a contract, you 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 have to stand by it, and that's fine. I I you know. Yeah, I mean, it, it's got to be awesome still, though, that you were a part of such oh, an iconic film. You're you're part of such an iconic film, and probably one of the you know top ten favorite of my horror films you know of all time and there's so many great oh, ones out there so you know it's it's uh here's what it, it you know in in retrospect because when while it was happening i was just you know banging as many women as i could because of it that's <laughs> that that that's where i was when i was you know 21 years old but at my age now i look back and and i'm writing a book about my life called called uh, as luck would have it the story of me and my very successful mediocre career, right? So it's it's about like I've had a real career that's been a lot of fun. And I've had these little moments, you know, where like I've only really acted in one film. I went on to write, write and produce after that. But I've only acted in basically one film. However, that one film is a real part of American film history. And, and for a while... While, you know, during that time, I think maybe for like a two week period, it was in the top 10 uh, 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 in the country. So I, I look at myself and say, well, you know, I'm still one of the four stars of a top 10 film. So, you know, it, it kind of tickles me when I when I look back at it. Uh, and I don't know, you know, it was. It's it's a thing that happened to me or that I was part of, but it's more Wes and Sean's and more Wes's accomplishment than mine. You know, I was just a part of it. Um, 
So, you know, again, a lot of fun. Now, was Wes pretty easy to work with? Oh, yeah. 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 He's Wes is sweet. Was a sweetheart guy. I ran into him. Uh, 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 we were both invited to an art gallery opening. Some some artists had done a multimedia rendering of uh, characters and scenes from Wes's films and was uh, displaying it at a gallery in Burbank. And the, the guy who owned the gallery uh, knew somebody who knew Wes and he knew somebody who knew me. And through those people, uh, uh, we were both invited and, and we both showed up. And I hadn't seen Wes in a while. And, uh, you know, we saw each other kind of, I was, I was there before him. He comes in and we kind of walk towards each other in this long gallery, shake hands, give each other a hug. And I looked at him and I said, so what have you been up to? <laughs> <laughs> and he just laughed. He said, "You're still the same, aren't you? You're so fucking crazy. You're still the same." And we had a wonderful. We had a wonderful. We talked privately for maybe a half hour, and it was a, it was a very nice conversation. I'll, I'll, without going into detail, it was just that's a. Awesome. Really, that's great. Yeah, that's awesome. No, he was. So just, when um when you're filming this, with this being your first film, were you at all overwhelmed jumping into this? Or did you feel pretty comfortable the whole way through? Well, you know, I, I, I'm I am always, no matter what I'm doing, even to this day, you're like I'm getting ready to do my first post-COVID uh, stand-up set on October 9th, and I, I still have the very same feeling. I am a constant uh, swirling bucket of of overconfidence and and sheer panic so <laughs> yeah it's, really it's it i i go back and forth to you know like i look at the material that i'm gonna do and i know it's funny and then at the same time i say to myself nobody is ever gonna fucking laugh at this no no <laughs> and i know and i know it's material i've done before i know but now i look at it so i i go back and i guess it was the same way i didn't know what i was doing i'd never made a movie before right so it was complete you know, I, I, I was like a sponge. I was learning and learning and learning. I mean, I, I learned, I, I swear to this day uh, uh, that I learned the fundamentals of everything I know about production from that experience. I mean, I, I just absorbed so much. So no, I just, I just you know, tried to, to bring a, 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 you know, a bit of the junky nuance that I had observed on the streets of New York for years. Uh, to the character and that I mean I don't even know if it's that sophisticated I think I just smoked a joint and did walk where Wes told me so, <laughs> so I you know with the, the movie being what it is and that and it, it especially then it was just so raw and graphic and that you know was there ever a point during any of these scenes that they're shooting that you're just like you know what the fuck am I doing with this <laughs> well you know, not really, because it doesn't look the same when you're shooting it. It's, it's, yeah, like you're, that is true. you know, when you're shooting something, you, at most, you have 180 degrees of, of any one particular image, right? Uh, uh, but when you're there, you know, sitting around like drinking a some bottle of orange juice while someone's being stabbed, it's like not, it doesn't have the same impact. Yeah, but, it kind of takes, yeah. takes and, and also, and also, no, man. I, I Look, about, I don't know, I think it was maybe a, a month before um, uh, I, I did Last House, I got uh, uh, another film role. 
and it wasn't really i it was like a porn movie but you know me being who i am i was the only one dressed uh so i ended up being a comedian because i owned it i got this job because i owned the tuxedos somebody was shooting some kind of scene for a porn film that that uh, 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 in a theater on 42nd street. Right. And I, you know, I did it for 75 bucks for the whole night. And I literally stood on a stage and told jokes while, while softcore pornography was going on behind me, like in a burlesque. <laughs> so, you know, when you're that age and you're living on your own in New York, and I had a pretty hot girlfriend at the time, uh, I was living with somebody, and, you know, I just, I just couldn't believe that, you know, some dork like me had had even gotten to that point, you know, <laughs> let alone have a real career. So shit, you know, have fun. So was it pretty easy to meet ladies after the movie comes out? Because it's kind of hard whether or not the, the ladies are going to take your role in this movie, <laughs> you know, how they're going to yeah. take it. It Here's when it was the easiest. While the film was in its play arc, right? Then it was the complete easiest. I mean, you know, I, I, uh, I, I went back, they had a big opening. I, I'm from Pittsburgh originally, and they had a big opening at, at a theater where a relative was, my father's cousin was the general manager of. And um, I went back three years after high school and there were women, girls who in my high school graduating class would not give me the time of day we're suddenly looking to, you know, do a lot more than give me the time of day. <laughs> and, and I kept, I remember being with one of them uh, during this little press thing that I did in Pittsburgh. And I, I just kind of like in the middle of it, you know, and I thought to myself, wow, I have really made the right career decision. <laughs> and, and I said, and, and this, I don't have to report to the IRS, you know, so. Uh, um, yeah, I, I, I kind of, look, I always wanted to, you know, I, I really have no career ambitions uh, uh, to speak of. Um, when I, I dropped out of college in 1969, I went to LSU in Baton Rouge. I actually went to school with uh, a famous American civil rights activist, David Duke. Uh, oh, really? Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, asshole then, asshole now. You got to give him one. <laughs> um, so, so, um, I, so were I, you in the same class? Like, did you guys, I, I did, I did, they did, I was in the drama department. I, I did theater there. I did, you know, I did a couple of plays, but then I just, it's 1969. I like middle of the spring semester. I just said, fuck this. I'm so unhappy here. It's just, it's not for me. I got tired of people. I got tired of people talking like this. You know, everybody talked to <laughs> enough of that. Right. So, yeah. so, so, um, uh, I just quit. I just said, that's it. I'm, I'm, you know, my mother shit a brick and, you know, and, and I said, well, I just don't want it. I'm, I'm going. And, uh, I dropped out of college. I had only three life goals. You know, I, I wanted to smoke as much weed as possible. And, and I wanted, I want, yeah, I mean, they're realistic, right? I, I wanted to, to, to sleep with as many different women as possible. And I wanted to make just enough money to afford the weed and the women. <laughs> and now I look back and, and uh, uh, as, as a matter of absolute fact, I have greatly exceeded my own expectations. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, that's, that's, and this is why my wife, like, she'll be yelling at me and she'll say, 
you don't do anything, do you? And I say, no, and it's been very successful. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm kind of like a weird kid. Like, if it wasn't for show business, I'd, I, you know, like in the med- med- medieval day, I would have been like the a fucking court jester, right? But th- then in modern times, if it wasn't for show business, I don't know what the fuck I would be doing. I, I just... I shudder it. And that, now that I'm on the other side of the creek, I don't care as much, but that used to frighten the hell out of me. Like, wait a second. What if suddenly this didn't exist? <laughs> so uh, when did, when did you first get into standup then? When did you do your first standup set? Okay. So, so everybody's got a story, right? So um, when I was 10 years old, now you guys are thinking 10 years old, he was doing standup. He was 10 years old. Uh, <laughs> when I was 10 years old, my father, who was an out-of-the-box aluminum siding salesman, who I owe the, the, for teaching me to think out of the box, um, said to me, uh, you got a birthday coming up. What do you want for your birthday? So I said, the Three Stooges. And he got them for me. Uh, uh, they were doing a, a two-week gig in Pittsburgh at the Holiday House, a nightclub that used to be there. And uh, my father just uh, went to them and said, hey, listen, I want to throw a party, birthday party for my son on this Saturday afternoon. What do you guys want for it? They told him. My father said, okay. And suddenly I had uh, uh, about 60 of my friends and their parents uh, as my guests in this birthday party. So in uh, the middle of the show, uh, uh, Mo stops the show and says to the audience, well, we're all here to celebrate Mark's birthday. Where is Mark? So, you know, I raised my hand and then Mo says, Mark, why don't you come up on stage with us? <laughs> so I went up on stage and I was a huge Three Stooges fan. Obviously, that's why I asked for them. And I knew like all their shit, man. I just knew all of their, I knew the physical parts of it. I knew the language. I knew the dialogue. I knew all their shit. So I knew what they were doing. And I kind of like seamlessly did a couple of bits with them. And Mo stops everything and puts his hand on my head and says, I W the fourth stooge. And the audience got, you know, my friend, they all started to applaud and laugh. And all of a sudden when they were doing that, I couldn't see shit because I had stage lights in my eyes, but I felt this, this warm wave, like someone had thrown a giant down comforter at me that it just kind of self wrapped around my body. And I thought to myself, wow, this feels pretty fucking good. Probably a 10 didn't say fucking, but I said, this feels good. <laughs> and, um, you know, in, in this kind of sense of, you know, everybody who, you know, junkies are always chasing that first high. I am always chasing that feeling I got when I was 10 years old. And it, I got it from being, getting laughs, being on stage. And I, I obviously wasn't sophisticated enough uh, uh, mentally at that time to say that this is, what I'm going to do, but I knew it felt good. And from then on, uh, according to what I remember and what my relatives tell me, everything I did uh, was uh, in the direction of uh, stand-up comedy, everything. That's cool. Uh, was your family pretty supportive then when you actually well, got into all this? I, I wouldn't say that my family is monolithic in that sense. Um, my father was a showbiz guy. So, I mean, he hung out with Joey Bishop and some other comedians and he and his, his uncle owned a nightclub in Pittsburgh after World War II. So my dad completely and utterly 
into it, right? Uh, my mother, well, they were divorced. My mother, not so much. Uh, she wanted me to uh, uh, become a lawyer. And that was, that was her mission is to, to make me a lawyer. And uh, it didn't work, obviously. So, uh, and then I have, you know, certain relatives, mostly people don't really understand it. That, that's, you know, it, and it's interesting because when I got to the comedy store in 1976, in the, um, like, February of 1976, or March, rather, um, I ran into, like, almost everybody who was very similar. The one thing that, that we all had in common is that we no longer had to explain ourselves to anyone. Like, Robin was Robin, and Leno was Leno, and Letterman was Letterman, and Michael Keaton was Michael. I mean, we were all, we were just, you know, it's just who we were. Nobody, no one ever questioned anybody about anything like that. Not like, yeah. not like you know, relatives do. So, does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah. So when when you got to the party or to the comedy store, I mean, uh, the party scene there had to be pretty pretty fun at the time. Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, give us some stories because we weren't there. Come on, uh, give give us a good story. Well, I, let me see. I I just I give you some personal just some personal stuff. Yeah. Um. I. LA in 1976 uh, because I had sold the first script I ever wrote, <clears throat> a movie of the week to NBC. So when I landed, like I, I told you, LA has been very good to me. When I landed in LA to move here, I, I had an agent, William Morris, and I had a car and I had an apartment and I had an office. This is how, this is like how I land. This is, this is my first introduction to LA and I had money and I had a deal, right? I had money. So, you know, I'm in a, I was in a meeting with my agents at, at William Morris and they said, well, what else do you want to do besides writing? Pilot season will be coming up in the spring and we'll get you out, but what would you like to do? And I told them about stand-up. So they called Mitzi at the comedy store and they said, uh, you know, we have a guy and, you know, he's from New York and yada, yada, yada. And he's uh, just sold a script to NBC. So I had some cred, you know, and so she wouldn't give me a regular time, but she gave me a time certain on a Monday night, on potluck night, which is, you know, realistically as good as I could have expected without me being some TV star. So uh, uh, I go there and I, I kind of get the sense of everything. I get my material ready and I go up on the first time and I do very well. You know, all the jokes worked. I had done a lot of stand up back in New York. I wasn't new to the stage, but it was new material. So, you know, it was stuff I had written just for, for L.A. for that set. So it took me like two or three weeks to get it where, where it was fine. So the third week, uh, um, I'm there, same thing, time certain on a Monday night, and Mitzi's in her booth showcasing another person. Uh, so I go up on stage around 10, 15, the guy before me, comedian before me, did a great job. Audience was very up. I did a really good set. And I squeezed every laugh out of that five minutes that I could. There was nothing. I didn't leave anything in the table. It was just, everything was just where it should be. So I walked off the stage and I saw Mitzi and she, I know she had, you know, she was listening to the audience applaud. And I just walked up to her and I said, Hey, Mitzi, does it have to get any better than that? And she just looked up without, she, all right, Mark, call in for spots. So then I became a regular. So 
the first night I have a, I'm, I'm now it's like, you know, now the rubber's meeting the road, right? So I get it. I get a Tuesday night, like 9.15 at sunset. And I show up early, like an hour and a half early. And I'm standing in the back parking lot, um, uh, smoking a joint because I'm nervous as shit. So uh, um, I see George Miller. I assume you guys know who that is, right? Yeah. Okay. So I see George walking down the walkway from sunset to the back entrance of the comedy store. And I see George's nose start sniffing the air, you know, like, like, uh, come, you know, he's sniffing and sniffing. And then he like sees me in the corner and he like makes a beeline towards me. And he comes and George, like, he gets like six feet away from me and his hand comes out to shake hands. He like, so he walks at me with like a spear hand, like, like to shake hands. And he said, hi, I'm George. I'm George. How are you doing? And I said, fine. I'm he said, is that pot? Is that pot I smell? Is that pot? And, and, and I said, yeah. I said, can I have a hit? Can I have a hit? Oh, boy, it smells good. Can I have a hit? And, and I, I said, sure. So George and I, like, uh, you know, we passed a joint around a couple of times. Said, said, you're a comedian. I said, yeah, tonight's my first night. He said, oh, you do fine. You do fine. I'm telling you, I'll introduce you. You do fine. And, and I said, thanks. So we finished the joint. And... Uh, uh, we start to walk in the back entrance of the comedy store. And as we're just about about to step in there, he turns to the right and he says, oh, there's my friend's truck. And I turn and I see an old beat up pickup truck with Indiana license plates on it. He said, yeah, my friend Dave's here. He's probably on the show tonight, too. Yeah, come on, I'll introduce you. And then George put his arm around me and like ushered me into the back door of the comedy store. And the first person I met after George was David Letterman. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, there were there were a lot of those moments, you know, there were there were a lot of moments with, uh, you know, Robin. Robin was a pal. Um, uh, uh, Leno was a pal. There are all these moments with these guys who were just those guys back then. Yeah. You know, they, they, were, they were just those guys. And and that was. Um, I look back on it, you know, and it's like an amazing time. It was just an amazing time. It was like yeah, that, not only was that a cool time for like, you know, L.A. and all that, but that was a really cool time to be at the comedy store. Yes, it was. Well, it was, you know, I'm what's known as uh, a, an original paid regular, which means I was there before the strike and I was there after the strike. And my name's been on the wall for like over 40 years. That's awesome. Yeah, that's way cool, man. That, that's cool. We, we've had uh, a lot of people from the comedy store on here, and it's always great to hear the stories there. Uh, definitely one of the best clubs in the country. Sure. Well, it really, it, it, you know, given its location, the fact that it's in L.A., it really was like, like the orphanage of last resort because, you know, people, all different kinds of people showed up there, and they all had that one thing in common that they were finally and for usually for the first time in a place where they didn't have to explain themselves to anyone and everybody was just accepted as who they were. You know, it's yeah. just, you, that's, that's who you, you are who you say you are. Right. That, and, and that, you know, the first time, the first night I got there when I went, not before this George Miller story, when I was starting to, you know, I knew enough to go and start hanging out there. Once the date was set, like I had two, a two week lead time, 
which I'm I'm grateful for because I went there and I saw Steve Bluestein and Tim Thomerson on stage on the same show. And I said to myself, Oh, I'm fucked. This this fucking Catskill Mountain shit that East Coast shit that I have is not gonna work here. So it pushed me. Yeah, it did. It pushed me. I'm I'm happy that happened. It scared the shit out of me because I knew it just wasn't gonna work. I could l- listen to the audiences and I said, nah, I'm fucked. So I wrote I, I, I got to write a whole new five minutes, which I'm grateful because uh, you know, it pushed me in a, a, a better direction. But yeah, it was it was some time, man. I, I just I, I just think it was probably like, you know, not including like the my children or anything, because I'm a parent and I have to always put that in parentheses. As a single as a single adult, you know, uh, that's the best time in my life. I mean, first of all, you know, I never had to go to a bar again to meet a woman. I just go on stage. It's yeah. like, yeah. Oh, that makes it so much easier. <laughs> yeah. There's a girl. There was a girl. I'll tell you guys a story. There was a girl there who, um, uh, uh, I meet, a, uh, let me, let me just backtrack. So I meet a girl, come off stage. I see a girl's looking at me on stage. Woman, girl, I don't know. So, so I'm on stage doing my act. And I see there's a, a table of, of women with no men. And uh, one of these girls is really staring at me. And when you're on stage enough in an intimate nightclub setting, you learn how to spot that real fast. There's <laughs> no, and, and there's, no, it, it, there's, there's no misinterpretation. Trust me. When, when, some, when a woman wants to send you that message in that environment, there is no misinterpretation. So... I meet this girl and uh, uh, my house was, was, was close by. So we end up back at my house, uh, my Laurel Canyon house. And after we're finished fooling around, she says to me, um, uh, I have to be, I have to tell you something. I'm seeing another comedian. And, and I said, uh, okay. You know, I mean, it's, this is like just the first night here. So I'm not making any long-term plans. Uh, <laughs> But thanks for telling me. And she said, well, aren't you curious who it is? I said, um, no, not really. I mean, as long as it's a healthy person, that's the only, you know, I'm Jewish, so I just care about diseases. I don't care about anything else like that. <laughs> you're, you're, you know, this is a, a time. Do what you want. She said, well, I'm going to tell you anyway. And she said, oh, I said, okay. She says, David Letterman. Oh. <laughs> I said, okay. And she said, no. She said, she said to me, you're not upset by that? I said, no. And as a matter of fact, I admire your range. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So So did Letterman ever uh, talk to you about this? No, I don't know if Letterman ever knew. And you know who knew if she was telling me the truth, right? I just know that's, right. that's what she said to me. So I, I have no firm proof uh, uh, that she was even telling me the truth. I just know that that's what she said. So, um, but that is what I said back to her for sure. That that is a great line, dude. That was funny. <laughs> Wait, way to stick it to her there. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. You know, shit, and that and that's the thing, man. It's just it's just. Um, well, my wife, I've been with my, my second wife now, 17 years, right? And, and um, she tells me all the time that 
if I wasn't funny and I couldn't cook, she would have thrown me out years ago. <laughs> she said, however, you're really funny and you're a great cook. So what the fuck? I'll keep you. So. <laughs> so you start slipping on the cooking and then. <laughs> oh, I can't do that, especially during the pandemic, because we would eat out a lot. Right. We'd go to a lot of restaurants. But during the pandemic, I had to really hone my skills. So. Yeah. You know. So. uh how how are things out there in California right now as far as the pandemic? Are you guys able to are, are you do you guys have life somewhat back to normal out there? Or? Well, you know, life ain't going to be normal till a person walks into a bank wearing a mask and it's again suspicious. That's <laughs> and until that happens, nothing's normal. Right. Well, you can still walk into a bank wearing a mask and the guy says, uh, you know, hello. Uh, How can we help you? So so it's it's OK. I mean, we we still have to wear to be, I mean, we're both double. And my and my wife is triple vaxxed and um, we, you have to be cautious. We're very like I'm really cautious during the during the, the worst of it. Uh, I, I didn't I didn't try to figure it out. I just got the best information I could for some doctor friends and um, decided that, you know, time to hunker down. And that's exactly what we did. We just said, we have to do this to come out the other side. And that's pretty much what we did. I did a lot of writing. I wrote a lot of jokes. I'd write, you know, I write, I'm a reflexive joke writer. I write jokes every day. So, um, you know, I just worked on my act. So I seen yeah with that too that you have a uh, a lot of writing credits for a lot of comedy sitcoms yeah um, like Charles in Charge who's the boss yeah um, I love how Bugs Bunny won the West <laughs> yeah how Bugs Bunny won the West like, yeah I'm telling you I I you know it's like I, I there are some people um in in they're not better or worse people than everybody else. But there are some people who are able to get by in the world by just being themselves. And, you know, my son is one of those. He's a chef and, and he's one of the really rocking up and coming chefs in L.A. And the reason he's good is when he's working, he's the happiest. He's, he's the happiest he is when he's cooking. So it's an extension of who he is. Robin Williams, who is the purest performer I've ever seen, hit, that's who he was. Uh, um, Letterman is a, that's who he is in person. Yeah. He's, he's, you know, he's just a smart ass, right? He never had an act when we were, you know, younger. He, he would just come out and do what became his show uh, uh, with the audience. He had a few jokes that he, that he had put together over the years, but he didn't really have an act like an act, you know, like Richie Lewis has an act or, or, uh, you know, somebody who really has, or Jackie Mason or Rodney who have, you know, no, but David, nobody handled an audience better than him. Nobody, not no one, no one would just take hold of an audience and bend them. You know, Robin overwhelmed an audience. Robin used to like, you know, leave people like, Oh, he, he would get out in the audience. I loved watching his stand up and just watching the, the crowd reactions in that. Cause I don't, I don't know if he could ever completely do the same exact set twice. Well, 
Yeah, I mean, he would do the same material. He'd just move it around. Robin had a yeah. <laughs> Robin had a three foot long, you know, thick joke book. Uh, but he he was he was really an amazing performer and and a good guy, a, a real terrific guy, um, just a, a good guy. I, I you know, I'm sad about what he did, but I knew him and I understand it. You know, Robin yeah. was a guy he couldn't say hello without using his whole body. So for him to be in a situation where he had no control over it. It, I, you know, I don't know if I would make that same choice, but I don't, I don't, uh, I don't fault him for it. But he was a yeah. really, he was a really, really good guy. You know, like I'll tell you a story about him. Uh, um, he, my father used to come and visit from Pittsburgh. He used to come out and visit me, and um, he knew he had met Robin before Mork, and then he saw him after Mork, right? So, so, um, when he saw him after Mork, my dad and I were standing outside of the improv on, uh, on Melrose, uh, uh, getting some air. And I see Robin coming, walking down. We parked his car. We used to use the Fred Siegel parking lot on, uh, Crescent Heights and Melrose. And I see Robin coming from that direction and he's got something tucked under his arm. So he, as he gets close to us, he sees my dad and he gives him this, you know, Robin Shakespearean greeting Lord Scheffler from, you know, like, Oh, Lord Scheffler from back in the East. What news brings you, <laughs> you know, at, like that kind of shit. And, you know, my dad's laughing his ass off. And, and, um, my father says, what do you have under your arm there, Robin? And Robin pulls out the uh, people magazine. The first time he was on the cover, right. Uh, you know, whatever that cover was him, I think he was dressed as Mork, uh, on the cover. So my father, he says, he said, Robin was really excited. He said, yes, yeah, my first cover. Oh, wow. Can you believe it? And and uh, uh, my dad says, I'm leaving here right now to go get one. And Robin says, no, here, take mine. And he pulls out a pen and he signs it to my dad. Right. And he gives it to him. And he, you know, says something to me and he see you later. Go, goes in the club. My brother, my younger brother, Michael, still has that magazine. That's awesome. Yeah, that's yeah. very cool, man. So when was the last time you would say that you guys actually seen each other or whatever hung out robin yeah um I, I a long time ago like i was doing you know when 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 your lives diverge in show business they really diverge and, and unless like we were never best friends but we were always you know buddies in the sense that we've done some shows together and you know uh, uh certainly hung out and and had a few meals and i was doing uh, uh, Brady Brides at Paramount when he was doing Mork and we used to see each other all the time. Uh, and you know, we've had, did we had dinner, you know, that kind of thing. But, um, uh, I was writing and uh, co-producing a people's choice awards one year and Robin was on and, uh, we, we kind of reconnected there. I'll, I'll tell you a Spielberg story. Want to hear a Spielberg story? Certainly. Yeah. Okay. So one year I'm doing the people's choice awards. And uh, I mean, I did it a few years with when Don Misher was the executive producer. I did it with my partner, uh, writing and producing partner, Sam Denoff. So um, uh, we, we find out that uh, um, Anthony Hopkins is going to be on the show. He's going to be uh, doing something and is a presenter, right? So my then wife, Jan, was a huge Silence of the Lambs fan. So I tell her that Anthony Hopkins is going to be on the show. And she said, well, I'm going, right? I'm going. And because they would have, you know, the production company would have tables for the writers and the executive staff uh, in the, in the 
uh, room in the in a studio where where the show was uh, shot. So uh, I said, yes, we'll go. So come the night of the show, we're all dressed up and I'm in a tuxedo and she's dressed. And I think her mother and stepfather were there where I got them in. And so it's at a big on a stage at Universal production stage. And the, uh, half the room is like a ballroom with table round tables. And the other half is the stage. And then there's a backstage area and a giant green room with, you know, catered stuff, right? And a bar and everything. So I'm in the uh, uh, green room. Uh, my wife is seated at, seated at the table uh, close by. And I'm, but I'm in the back green room schmoozing with talent because Mission Don used to like Sam and me to schmooze with talent because we knew a lot of people and, you know, we made people comfortable. So um, I'm standing there and I'm having a drink with uh, Spielberg, who I knew from Harry and the Hendersons, and Michael Douglas, who was on the show doing an, a, a, a tribute to Spielberg that Sam and I wrote, and Carol Burnett, who I knew was a, 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 because she was a friend of Sam's. I had met her before. So I'm standing there with Spielberg, Michael Douglas, and Carol Burnett. And I'm having, we're, we're talking, just talking, right? And um, I see the front of the uh, green room, there's a page, a CBS page, and Anthony Hopkins. And I see the page point to me. So I knew I was going to have to go do my thing. So I excused myself a little bit. And Hopkins comes close. He and Spielberg and Michael Douglas and Carol exchange greetings. And, and Hopkins sticks out his hand and says, Tony Hopkins, nice to meet you. Tony Hopkins. Just like that. So I said, <laughs> he said, you're Mark, right? And I said, yes, Tony Hopkins. Nice to meet you. Tony Hopkins. So um, I said, okay. Hey, so we talked and I told him what we needed of him and whatever. And he said, no problem. And uh, he said he thinks he'll have, uh, you know, a glass of water or something and sit down and I'll talk to Stephen. And I said, whatever you want to do, just chill. We're, you know, you don't have to get dressed for like an hour and a half. So I said, hey, listen, I got a weird favor to ask you and you could say no. And I totally understand. My wife is outside and um, she's a huge fan of yours. And it, it would probably be good for me sexually if, if I could bring her in here and, and meet you. And he, <laughs> and he laughed when I said that. And he said, by all means, allow me to contribute to your well-being, you know, something like that. And and so I, I said, all right, you'll be here, right? He said, absolutely. So I run out to the table. It takes me two seconds. I said, hey, Jan, you got to come with me. And she said, what do you mean? I said, you got to come with me. I can't. I need your help. And she said, well, tell me why. I said, I can't tell you in front of all these people. Just follow me. So I take her backstage and I take her real fast into the green room. So the picture is like she she's walking in and on on her left is Carol Burnett. Then uh, Michael Douglas had left and there's a hole in the bar. And then Spielberg is still there. So and Hopkins. So I, I, I take her up and I say uh, uh, real fast, Jan. Anthony Hopkins. And he does the same thing to her. He sticks his hand out. Tony Hopkins. Tony Hopkins, Jan. Nice to meet you. Ah, wonderful. I'll sign his lambs. Wonderful. Tony Hopkins. Right. So she, and she's like this, right? And she's like doing Jackie fucking Gleason, man. So I said, can't do that. You know the rules. Act like a person. Can't do that. I say, Tony, thank you so much. Jan, time to go back to your parents. So I shuttle her back to the table. Now I come back and, and uh, 
um, I'm standing, and only Stephen is at the bar. And I mean, there are other people mingling around, but he's the only one standing there. Hopkins had gone off. So I come back, and Spielberg says to me, what, your wife didn't want to meet me? <laughs> he said, he said to me, what am I, chopped liver? I said, Stephen, you are not chopped liver, but you ain't Hannibal Lecter either. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great story, man. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, as you mentioned it with uh with your first wife there. Now, did you ever work with anybody or encounter anybody that you were in starstruck for a moment? Uh no. You mean mean anyone that I no, no, I got over that. See, I got over that when I was a kid. My dad was um very close friends with uh the Pittsburgh Pirates. Like in like the night like the nineteen sixty team, the one that world the won the World Series beat the Yankees. If you if you my dad like was friends with most of those guys and several of them he was like very close friends. As a matter of fact, uh, a, a famous pitcher from the Pirates, a relief pitcher by the name of Roy Face, uh, was the uh, a carpenter on the house my father built in Pittsburgh. So they were he was like so I was hanging out with famous baseball players when I was a little kid and. That kind of, you know, it. I don't know. I guess it inured me to being like that. Like it doesn't have any real effect. And 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 I'm 72 years old, and I, I've been a professional in show business since I was 21. So I've been hanging out with famous and semi-famous people uh, like myself since you know for 50 years. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I never. I don't know. I maybe I maybe maybe it's a, a flaw. It's like a character flaw, you know. That that. I, but no. no I, honestly, I I would imagine that that probably works in your favor. Um, you know, I <laughs> I think that when uh, people get that starstruck, they don't. Um, they're not presenting themselves in the best light necessarily. <laughs> yeah, like like I'll tell you, like Frankie Valley and I are old friends, right? Uh, yeah. I, we're friends for like. I just seen him a couple of years ago. Yeah, we're friends like we're friends like since nineteen seventy nine, I think. Right, we're friends. Uh, uh, Corbin Burnson and I are old pals. Uh, Mark Summers and I are like best friends. So, you know, it's just I don't know, just the people I know, the people in my life. Yeah, no, I, I I had no idea that you knew who uh, Steve Bluestein was. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm friends with Steve, so I was, yeah, we've, we've, we've had him on the show. Okay, so the night, the night I saw Steve, I had a date at the store, right? I had, like I told you, I had a firm date. I walked in and watched Steve Bluestein, and I said to myself, wow, number one, he was fucking amazing, and it, it was watching Steve... And then uh, uh, Tim Thomerson uh, that said, there's no fucking way. I'm going to just fall on my ass. And, <laughs> and so, you know, he was just that good. I mean, just that fucking good. It just, it just rocked me. So, yeah, no, he, he, he's a cool guy. dude for sure. Yep. No, um, so ha have you been working on anything? Do you have anything coming up? Well, I'm kind of, I'm in a weird place. Like, you know, as a writer, 
I don't know. I, I have a pilot for a series that I wrote um, kind of like, I, I hate to say, I, I don't want to say Wonder Years because they just redid that, but I wrote an edgy coming of age story, uh, but very edgy, like, like could never do it on anything but a streaming service. Uh, um, when I, I told you guys that, that when Last House opened up in Pittsburgh, it opened up at a theater that my father's cousin was the general manager of. Well, my father's cousin was the general manager of all Stanley Warner theaters in the Pittsburgh area, Tri-State area during that time. And when I was a kid, a little kid, uh, I used to go and uh, we'd, all, we'd get in all the movies for free. So uh, um, I used to imagine myself as a kid in a movie on that screen at the Stanley Theater. So I wrote a, a, a pilot for a series that's the, the seven years from the time I tell my dad one day that I'm gonna one day be in a movie that uh, opens at this theater, and then when Last House opens at the Stanley. So it and, and it's the journey from that point to that point. So who knows? Maybe I'll sell it and be able to do it, and maybe I won't. I don't know. I I, I have I can only control the writing part of it. Um, it sounds like a cool idea, man. I like it. Yeah, it's it's it's. I make a promise, and then it's it's the journey of the fulfillment of that promise. Yeah, you know? I, I I like it. Sounds like a good idea. Yeah, so you know, maybe yes, maybe no. But in the meantime, I you know, I do my character El Yid, my character, and uh, I do I do stand up, and you know, I I got a great wife and great kids, and the wolves are not knocking at my door. So uh, I have kind of everything to be grateful for. So uh, do you have any dates that are official for stand-up? Where can people yeah, see you? Um, well, as my El Yid character, the character I perform as, um, I'm doing a show on October 9th at the Tustin, uh, in Tustin, California, at the uh, Encore Dinner Theater. I'm on a show with some other comedians there. Very cool. And yeah, no, friend, that's uh, my good friend Steve Middleman is closing the show. What's that? My good friend Steve Middleman is closing the show. Steve who? Middleman. 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 M I T T L E M A N. You'd re no doubt you'd recognize him if you saw his picture because he does a lot of commercials. All right. Yeah. No, that's uh, that's cool that you're able to get back out and get performing live again. I, I know through the pandemic, Dean and I were going crazy. So, you know, we're, we just now got back on yeah. stage again and felt good. Oh, it's horrible. So, I mean, you yeah. know, like I, I did, uh, um, I did a bunch of zoom shows, you know, and some I would do, are we running out of time? I don't want to take up too much time. Oh, we're, we're good one, everybody. So okay. no, go ahead. Yeah. I, I did a bunch of Zoom shows, like, you know, half a dozen of them, but I don't like them uh, uh, because I did them half as, you know, like three, like three is me. And then I did three as Elliot. And I, I don't like them because the reason I went back to doing stand up was for the immediacy of, of uh, human interaction. Right. It was it was um, not so so I could get away from looking at computer screens. But so I did one. And um, it was three millennial comedians and me. <laughs> and, yeah, and, and they were really young. I mean, they were like young millennials. 
So, so the host said, listen, I'm going to start it off by asking you a question. Okay, we're in the middle of a pandemic. You can be stuck with, you know, you can be in with any one other person. Who would you be with? And the first comedian's young guy says, uh, oh, I'd like to be with uh, Marissa Tomai. And and because uh, I think she's really hot and I love cougars and, you know, she's going and I would like really, you know, just really I put it to her for the entire time we were locked up in this lockdown pandemic shit. I'd be banging her. So, you know, OK, then then he, he, he goes to the next guy and he said, yeah, well, not Marissa Tomei, but, you know, I'd be with Taylor Swift, man. I'd be I would putting it to Taylor Swift. Right. And and I, I know she'd never she'd want me. She'd never want any other man ever again. And and it wouldn't matter how long this thing lasted. She'd be my you know my woman. She Taylor Swift. She'd be my woman. So okay, he goes to the third comedian who I think wanted to be with the second comedian. Um, <laughs> and and then you know he said something. And then so he says, Hey Mark, who would you like to be with if you had to be stuck with anyone during this pandemic? So I said, Louis Pasteur, you fucking moron. I can get laid. I need a vaccine. (laughs) (laughs) And it got a huge laugh, right? And and I kept thinking, how could not any of these guys think to say something absurd like that, right? They went right for the low-hanging fruit. (laughs) And that's that's like, you know, I see a lot of millennial comedians in clubs or I used to when, you know, when I was going out and every now and then I'd see somebody who was good, but most of them, you know, it's just, it's low hanging fruit and high concept and no punchlines. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, uh, no fucking punchlines. You got to have a punchline. I, I, I do fear that the state of comedy here in the future is probably going to a dark place because, uh, it just isn't a whole lot of good new people coming out right now. I, I think it's the people worry too much of the over PC. Yeah, the between yeah. PC and all this shit, you yeah, know, they, it's it's hard. It, it we've killed comedy because we can't take a joke anymore. That's kind of yeah, yeah. That's that's what I love about being old. I can say what the fuck I want, you know. <laughs> I, but, but I never see. Here's the thing, like I never. Uh, uh, am disrespectful. I'll call bullshit out, right? But I'm never disrespectful to anybody because that I don't think is right. You know, that's just that's just wrong to be. I don't have to be disrespectful to anybody to be funny. If I had to be, then I'd just be like a smart asshole, you know? Uh, yeah. You know, so... so. Um, but I think you're right. I think your generation... Like, there's... Some, I, I have millennial children, uh, uh, and a lot of times, like I'll say something that I don't personally believe is crossed any line. And like one of them will say, Oh dad. And I say, oh, God, <laughs> what did I say? Analyze what I said. You know, I, did, I, did I upset that I hurt anyone's feelings? Well, no, but you, you know, well then shut the fuck up. You know, just, <laughs> I, I, I think that people forget that intent should matter when with the words that you say. Yeah, if your intent is not to harm anybody and it is in good fun, you should be able to say what the fuck you want. 
Yes, you should. I mean, self-expression is self-expression. And I don't think, I think, I don't think we're served uh, uh, sociologically or um, uh, creatively when we start throwing blinders and, you know, governors on, on material. You just, you know, like I have material that I did when I was first started out in the experimental stage that, you know, got laughs, but I certainly wouldn't do it now because it's a different time and place. Yeah. You know, if yeah. I didn't, if I didn't learn that lesson, you know, I'd have a problem, but, uh, uh, I did learn it. So, you know, we grow, we, we evolve. But oh yeah. Other shit I said 20 years ago when I would <laughs> never say now, but <laughs> oh, I'm sure I said things yesterday that aren't allowed today. <laughs> they've already yeah, they've, they've changed the rules today. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I hear that one. So, you know, I don't know. I just, I just, it just try to be relevant and funny. You know, I just, I, 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 I'm refl I, I write jokes, like I said, I write jokes reflexively. I just see them. Yeah, no, uh, hopefully when we get out to California there, we can come check you out. Okay. See, see you do the live show. That'd be great. Oh, yeah, that'd be awesome. Yeah. Hopefully I'll have live shows to do, you know. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're, um, we're starting to book stuff, but other than this show on the 9th, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Well, best of luck to you on that one, buddy. I hope it goes great. Oh, you know, it's fine. You know, I've, I've had, I <laughs> know, seriously, I have a lot of fun. I do nothing to fucking have fun. So, well, I hope you have a great time there. That's what I meant. I hope, I hope it's a blast for you. Put you know? things in perspective. It's all about, if it ain't fun, don't do it. That's right. Man. We, we agree with that. So. Yeah, but hey, uh, real quick before we let you go, is there uh, where can people find you on the social media? Um, well, I'm on Facebook as myself and as uh, Elid spelled a small e l new word y i d, and it's on Facebook, and then um, also on uh, Instagram, I believe. Okay, cool. So, do you uh, keep all your dates updated on there? So. When new yeah, dates come out, everything will be on there. I do. Yeah, I do. Or my wife, you know, makes me do it. Or <laughs> I, I really don't give a shit about a lot of things, and I, I now only give a shit about being funny on stage. That's it. So, right on. Yeah, that's it. The, the less you give a shit, the better life is. You know. Yeah, that's all I care about. It's, I mean, I care, I care about my family, obviously, but as far as exerting any extra energy towards anything, I just uh, aim it towards writing jokes. Oh, were you going to say something, Dean? Oh, no. Oh, no. I like the sound of dead air, don't we? This is what space <laughs> No, no, Dean, Dean looked like <laughs> he was going to say something. Yeah. <laughs> But all right, yeah, Mark, we hope to have you back here soon, buddy. Right, Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. It's been a thrill. It's been, it's been fun. Good luck but, to you guys, too. Select, man. Stay in touch. Like I said, we both. All righty. Talk to all you right, soon. Take care, Mark. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.